Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. On today's show, author and historian Gerald Horn on the real history and politics of the Supreme Court. They expect that the anomaly, the Warren Court of the 1950s and 1960s, to be the example, to be the trend, when actually it was the Warren Court that was the anomaly. And whether it's Trump's Muslim travel ban or increasing outrage over immigrant concentration camps, Hundreds took to the streets of D.C. this week to raise their voices in protest. What if our country is not dead, but is waiting to be born? What if this is a moment of great transition? And what does the midwife tell us? The midwife says, breathe! And then, push! The midwife says, breathe! And then, push! All that and more, coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. For Friday, June 29, 2018, I'm Esther Ivarum. 600 women, along with some men, were arrested on Thursday at a sit-down demonstration inside the Hart Senate Office Building on Capitol Hill. They were protesting the Trump administration's practice of separating refugee children from their parents on the Mexico border. Though Trump signed an executive order ending the practice of family separation, there has been no announced plan for reuniting the thousands of children already removed from their parents, often with the parents having no knowledge of their child's whereabouts and with many parents already deported from the country. The mass act of civil disobedience and arrests occurred after hundreds marched to Capitol Hill from the Department of Justice. The action was organized by leaders of last year's Women's March and other groups. More from Thursday's mass action in the second half of the show. Crowds of demonstrators also rallied outside the Supreme Court this week as the court handed down several controversial decisions. On Tuesday, the court held up Trump's Muslim travel ban, which includes five Muslim-majority countries, and the court ruled against the California law requiring so-called pregnancy crisis centers to give out complete information to women seeking an abortion and to disclose to clients that they are not actually licensed medical facilities. Here are some voices of those outside the Supreme Court this week. No ban, no wall. No ban, no wall. No ban, no wall. No ban, no wall. Uh, My name is Rebecca. Um, I'm originally from Oregon, but I currently live in Boston. So I'm an intern at Americans United for Separation of Church and State, and we're out here uh, protesting the decision in the Muslim ban case. My name's Donna Farvard. I'm the organizing director for the National Iranian American Council. So we're out here today to express our outrage in the Supreme Court's decision to uphold the Muslim ban. 
this ruling will impact what's already happening? So the Muslim ban's been in place for a while now, so we're just going to see a continuation of what has be unfortunately has become the norm. And I think at this point we have to, to pull out from it being the norm. I think we had relied for so long on the Supreme Court to do the right thing. Now we have to f push forward um, to really now put the onus on Congress um, to end the Muslim ban once for all and really not make it the norm anymore. Okay, yeah. So a lot of times when the Supreme Court makes a decision, people think that that's really the end of it. But what you're saying is that people need to remember that Congress can have the final word. Exactly. 100%. Um, they can, they could end the Muslim ban tomorrow if they decide to pass legislation. And there have been three different iterations on bills that would defund and end the Muslim ban once and forever. Um, but unfortunately, it's been blocked time after time again by Republicans in Congress. So I think this is the point for us to really like call out our members in Congress and say, like, are, first off, are you willing to be a champion for our communities? Are you going to stand up and do the right thing? Or are you going to sit back and be passive and say, it's not on my hands, I can't control it? And the second is, if you've been silent on the issue because you're afraid of what Trump might say, um, are you going to come out and do the right thing? Or are you going to continue to side with the Trump administration? Okay. Are, are there any champions in Congress that you can point to or rely on? Yeah, absolutely. So on the House side, um, Representative Lafgren and Chu, um, they both introduced um, two different bills um, to defund the Muslim ban. Um, and then on the Senate side, you have Feinstein and Murphy doing the same thing. Um, we're definitely seeing um, a, like, and for each iteration of those bills, all of the Democrats have signed on and co-sponsored them. So we have a lot of folks who are supportive, but definitely the champions are the ones who have introduced those bills. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, so what what are you going to do after today? We're going to keep fighting. So we're encouraging all of our uh, members right now to call their members of Congress today and immediately express their outrage. Um, we're going to be lobbying our members of Congress. We're going to be sharing the stories of people who are impacted. So if someone's impacted, uh, the best thing that they can do is just share their story with an organization or with the media to make sure it gets out there and there is that human side to this issue. Um, and ultimately, we need to show up and mobilize and show our members of Congress that we need them to do the right thing. So do you want to share uh, one of those stories of impact for people who, who really may not realize how people are being impacted? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, one of my friends um, just got married a couple months ago um, to an Iranian green card holder. Um, and they were planning on doing their wedding inside the United States. But then the Muslim ban happened, and all their family could no longer enter. They couldn't get visas to come into the States to attend their wedding anymore. So they had to change their entire wedding plans, do it inside Iran instead. And actually, my friend, her sister couldn't even attend her wedding because she couldn't go back to Iran for political reasons. Um, so this is something, you know, one of the happiest days of someone's life all of a sudden became extremely stressful and pretty sad and laden with the burden um, of knowing that your president doesn't want your friends and family to come visit you, that you are now a second-class citizen. Uh, I'm Tremaine, and I just came down to observe. I heard about the uh, protests that they were doing as far as the Muslim banning, so I just wanted to observe and see, you know, how much uh, 
people were bothered by this and what they were going to say about it. Well, how do you feel about it? The Supreme Court uh, basically upheld uh, Trump's what, what's known as the Muslim ban. Yeah, I think it's it's a travesty, honestly. It's obviously uh, ruffled a lot of people's feathers, and I don't think it should have been passed to begin with. I think it's unfair to call out a certain group of people just for their religious backgrounds or the color of their skin. Any of that stuff is, is, is not right, and I don't think it should have got uh, uh, passed through the Supreme Court. I see you have a sign. You're out here in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, tell me your name, uh, where you're from, and why you're out here today. Hi, my name is Jeff. I'm from Skokie, Illinois, uh, just outside of Chicago. I'm out here today because I've gotten tired of watching our government behave really poorly to people who are trying to be safer and can't find that safety in their own countries. And so they come to America hoping to find something a little better, and they're met at the border with hostility and hatred and, and uh, basically imprisonment. Okay. So tell me about your sign. So the sign says, if you have to imprison babies to prove that you stand for law and order, you're doing it wrong. The sign also has a picture of our president, Mr. Trump, uh, one of his advisors, a fellow named Stephen Miller, and our U.S. Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, uh, all three of whom are, uh, in my view, complicit in the policy on the southern border right now of trying to ban asylum seekers and separating children from their families. Okay. Any of the recent things that have happened here uh, in terms of him actually signing this executive order, a lot of people are saying that that's not a solution. I don't believe, believe it is either because there are um, other laws. There's a ruling in California, I believe it's called the Flores Settlement, uh, which prohibits the government from keeping children separated from their parents for more than 20 days. And the Trump administration is trying to overrule that or make that, la that last longer, which I believe is inhumane. Okay, and so I see your shirt says, Dissent, Resist, Revolt, It's Now or Nazi America. Wow, that's... That's strong language. Yeah, I, I do kind of feel that. I feel like this on the poster, you can't see the fellow Stephen Miller, uh, one of Trump's adv advisors, is very hardcore, right-wing, very extremist when it comes to refugees, when it comes to people who are not white. Uh, he has a very white uh, supremacist orientation, and he speaks directly to the president. And I don't like where I see the country heading as a result of the president taking some of his advice. In other racial justice news, D.C. residents are reacting to the approval of a permit for the organizer of last year's deadly white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, to hold an anniversary event in front of the White House. The permit has been granted to Jason Kessler for August 11th and 12th. Related, on Wednesday, James Fields, the man who drove a car through that crowd of counter-protesters in Charlottesville last year, has been charged with multiple hate crimes for the death of Heather Heyer, and for injuring 28 other people. In addition to those federal charges, Fields faces charges in the city of Charlottesville and in the state of Virginia, including for first-degree murder. That trial is expected to begin on November 26th in Charlottesville. Also related, in Pennsylvania, East Pittsburgh police officer Michael Rosfeld has been arrested and charged with the shooting death of 17-year-old Antoine Rolls Jr., who was shot in the back June 19th while fleeing from a car that had been stopped on suspicion that it was involved in the drive-by shooting. In climate news, scientists and researchers are sounding the alarm over a recent proposal from the acting head of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration that would remove climate and conservation from the agency's mission statement. 
The current agency statement describes the mission as, quote, to understand and predict changes in climate, weather, oceans, and coasts, to share that knowledge and information with others, and to conserve and manage coastal and marine ecosystems and resources. Gallaudet's proposed change mission statement is to, quote, observe, understand and predict atmospheric and ocean conditions, to share that knowledge and information with others, and to protect lives and property, empower the economy, and support homeland and national security, end quote. Andrew Rosenberg, director of the Center for Science and Democracy at the Union of Concerned Scientists, said of the proposed change, quote, Understanding the changing climate is becoming more critical by the day as effects of global warming mount, and it's essential to protect our economy and security, end quote. He added, quote, removing conservation from its mission statement is equally alarming. We have made outstanding progress in ocean conservation from fisheries to whales and other endangered species over the past few decades, he said. After the initial report about the proposed change, Gallaudet told USA Today that his presentation at the Commerce meeting was not intended to be a final vetted proposal. In culture and media, the DMV is filled with people from all over the world, and that includes soccer fans following the World Cup. The international meet started on June 15th in Russia with 32 teams. Now, 16 are moving on to the next round, and 16 teams are out, including the defending champions, Germany. Argentina, with one of the world's best players, has faltered but is still in the running. And the next set of matches for the remaining 16 teams is going to start on June 30th. And finally, on a sad note, the historian Harry Jones, expert on contributions of African Americans during the Civil War and former assistant director and curator at the African American Civil War Freedom Foundation and Museum here in Washington, D.C., died on June 22nd, according to the Fayetteville Observer and according to an obituary posted online by the Stuffle Bean Coffee Funeral Home. According to The Observer, Jones gave a lecture June 19th at the North Carolina Civil War and Reconstruction History Center. His subject was Juneteenth, one of his favorite topics. The newspaper said that he died days later, but no cause of his death was given by either the newspaper or obituary. Funeral services will be held July 3rd in Pauls Valley, Oklahoma. Jones was 59 years old. And those are our headlines. When we come back, a talk with Gerald Horn about the Supreme Court. Stay with us. Going on, and if I be strong enough to finish my 
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Iverm. And now I'm turning to our geopolitical analyst, professor, author, Gerald Horn. And Gerald, I want to get your reaction to all the things happening with the Supreme Court this week. Tremendous decisions being handed down in terms of the Muslim travel ban, the Janus case, which will have a big impact on organized labor, another case on reproductive rights. Tell me your reaction to those cases this week and also the announcement by Judge Kennedy that he is going to retire. And that's sent shockwaves through the political establishment here. Well, I have to say I'm I'm really concerned by some of the comments of our liberal friends who understandably are upset about the nominee that Mr. Trump will probably put forward. But in some ways, our liberal friends are like the child who kills his parents and then demands mercy from the court because he's an orphan. What I mean is one of the reasons that we're in this pickle right now with Donald J. Trump and the Supreme Court is not least because our liberal friends some years ago decided to rely upon the courts to vindicate rights and in fact help to purge the left from their ranks so Mm. that they could then emerge as dominant forces. I'm speaking of the American Civil Liberties Union, which purged one of its stalwarts, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. I'm speaking of the AFL-CIO, which purged Harry Bridges of the International Longshore and Warehousemen's Union. I'm speaking of the NAACP, which in 1948 purged its founder, W.E.B. Du Bois. And, of course, all of these purges helped to strengthen the right wing and bring us to the brink of disaster where we are now standing. Recall that in 1988, when Justice Kennedy was nominated to the court by Ronald Reagan, the NAACP supported him, despite the cries of outrage and protest from those of us on the left. And now, quite appropriately, uh, Mr. Kennedy has exited the court while signing on to Mr. Trump's outrageous Muslim travel ban, and not only that, but signing on to the Janus decision, which bids fair to gut trade unions, particularly trade unions in the public sector, which are the unions that are growing right now, as opposed to unions in the private sector. Now, uh, Chuck Schumer, the Senate minority leader uh, on Capitol Hill, uh, tells us that he's going to invoke the so-called McConnell rule. Recall that when Justice Scalia perished a few years ago, uh, Mr. McConnell refused to put forward a nominee, Merrick Garland, of President Obama, because he said, let the voters decide. And now Chuck Schumer is saying, let the voters decide in November, and then there'll be a time for, to have hearings on a new nominee. Well, point number one, Mr. McConnell does not seem to be uh, up to uh, following the McConnell rule. And number two, that point by Mr. Schumer helps to obscure the fact that there are a number of Democrats, such as Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Joe Donnelly of Indiana and Heidi Heitkamp of North Carolina, who are likely to either support a Trump nominee to the high court or certainly not demand that Mr. McConnell stick to the McConnell rule. So in any Hmm. case, we're in a real 
pickle right now. We're in a real dilemma, but it would be one-sided if we were to act as if this were a bolt from the blue. Uh, there are many culprits with regard to this outrage that we now see unfolding. So if these different organizations that you mentioned, like the ACLU and the AFL-CIO, had not purged leftists, you know, what, what path would they have chosen? Uh, just be involved more in popular organizing and connecting their work more with mass movements? Well, sure. They would have had to fight. <laughs> they would have had to try to rely upon what they should be relying on today, which is going door to door, trying to influence people ideologically to the left. But they took the easy way out, which was basically a mass purge. Well, I'm wondering if it's unfair to blame civil rights organizations in the 1950s for wanting to rely on the courts when Congress was run by Dixiecrats at that time. And you had an executive branch that was also right wing. So... Is it fair to just say that they were selling out when maybe they turned in that direction out of desperation? Well, that's a fair point. But keep in mind that it wasn't just a reliance upon the courts, although it was surely that. It was also a reliance upon the liberal wing of the U.S. ruling elite. And there was an implicit, implicit assumption that that liberal wing would remain in descendancy. And it's clear that that bet did not pay off. You know, I've gone through the letters and files and correspondence of all of these organizations, and the point that I just mentioned never crossed their mind. Uh, that's part of my complaint, is that this faithful decision to engage in these purges was really in many ways sort of an unthinking decision. Uh, they didn't game plan it. Uh, they didn't plot out what the counter moves would be, and now we're on the precipice of disaster. Well, you know, some commentators are saying that this is the most right-wing Supreme Court that they've seen or perhaps that they know, and they're comparing it to the court that, you know, handed down the Dred Scott decision, you know, in the 1800s. And, you know, I guess those of us who are in the post-civil rights, you know, generations have only seen a court or known a court that we imagine can be a source of hope, you know, that can hand down uh, decisions related to women's rights and civil rights. And so this turn in the court seems like something strange, but maybe that's not how we should be looking at the court. Well, obviously that's a misreading. The court of Roger Taney, the Maryland politician who inked the Dred Scott decision of 1857, I'm afraid to say, was typical of the U.S. Supreme Court. You have to see the court of the 1950s and 1960s as anomalous. I'm speaking of the court led by Earl Warren of California, who, by the way, was a California politician who led the internment of Japanese Americans in the 1940s, and suddenly we're supposed to believe that in the 1950s and 1960s, he becomes an avatar of civil rights and equality. The fact that that simple fact did not dawn on many of our liberal friends, I think, exposes the, their misreading of history. That is to say, they expected the anomaly, the Warren Court of the 1950s and 1960s, 
to be the example, to be the trend, when actually it was the Warren Court that was the anomaly. Well, well, something I've been thinking about, you know, every now and then these conversations come up about the Constitutional Convention because apparently the right wing is very close to getting the number of states it needs to hold such a Constitutional Convention. And I only bring it up because when I look at the court, I'm wondering how can we change this court? I mean, how, how do we, how do we get, be able to have a, a Supreme Court that is actually just and is reflective of the people? You know, this is the most undemocratic part of government. And these people are appointed, appointed for life. They're not elected. And in this case, they were appointed by a president who didn't even win by the popular vote. I mean, obviously, the United States needs to move away from its archaic, antiquated 18th century constitution. But I'm afraid to say that this idea of a constitutional convention is not an idea worth supporting at this particular moment because the progressive forces don't have the strength to weigh in if a constitutional convention were to take place and this 18th century constitution easily could be replaced by a 15th century constitution if the right wing has their way. So you know that on this show, on on the ground, we've done a series, gosh, for more than three years now called The F Word when we talk about fascism. And so I wonder... When you look at the Supreme Court and this, I want you to talk a little bit about its role in this fascist turn in the country. When you look at even their decision in terms of Citizens United, which gave corporations this direct access to and control over the political process and to elected officials. And we're still living with the dire consequences of that now. Well, that reminds me of the comment about fascism's favorite composer, Wagner of Germany, and of his music, it was oftentimes said it was better than it sounded. I think that with regard to the turn towards fascism, it's actually worse than it looks. What I mean is, is that even though understandably we're focused like a laser beam on this domestic situation in the United States with regard to a possible nominee to the Supreme Court, was to the right of Anthony Kennedy, as we look abroad, we see the extraordinary development of Donald J. Trump openly seeking to undermine, if not dislodge, Chancellor Merkel in Germany. That is to say, trying to engage in regime change with regard to a major European power. We see that his ambassador in Berlin, Richard Grinnell, has talked about empowering right-wing populists throughout Europe, uh, which is another word for saying Uh, empowering neo-fascists. We see his former advisor, Steve Bannon, Bannon, uh, doing something similar to that in Italy, where he's allied with the neo-fascist government there, and is obviously, in his own words, seeking a kind of regime change in the Vatican, because he finds the Pope too liberal for his tastes. And so this is providing gust into the sails of fascism at home because of their manipulations abroad. Actually, when I think about fascism and other countries, you know, I'm, I'm always interested in the information you bring about, you know, Germany and what's happening in Europe. But I, my mind goes toward places like 
Gaza, you know, or Palestine and Yemen, where we're, we are complicit in war crimes in terms of supplying weapons and weaponry and refueling planes and all types of military aid and, you know, millions and billions of dollars and basically being a party to genocide. So, that's what I really think about and how this is just part of this long tradition, you know, horrible tradition, you know, all around the world of imperialism, you know, and and death and exploitation and just millions of people dying because of the United States. And it's just so easy for people to, I keep having these conversations with people about, people who are rightfully angry and upset about what is happening on our southern border and people are very upset about the idea of children being ripped away from their their parents but you know children in Palestine are being ripped away from their their parents you know people in Yemen children in Yemen are dying and starving at our hands and so I just find myself, you know, in conversations where I'm trying to draw out the links between uh, what's what people are really concerned about right now and the larger picture of U.S. foreign policy and and what we're really doing around the globe. Well, this brings us full circle to where we began. That is to say, when the liberals participated in the purge of those to their left, What they also purged was a kind of global analysis and a global viewpoint that makes linkages between the domestic and the global, that connects the dots between what's happening on the Texas-Mexico border and what's happening with regard to an attempted coup in Venezuela or an implicit support of a coup in Honduras a few years back that helped to drive people to the border or what's happening in Yemen with regard to U.S. complicity in what is amounting to a slow motion genocide. I think that until we arrive at the conclusion that faithful steps were taken years ago that led us right now to where we are, we won't be able to understand this current dilemma that we now are confronting. Well, I'm sure we'll keep having these conversations where we can answer more of these questions and figure out ways to be inspired and to keep fighting back. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. Hear ye, hear ye. The coat's in session. The coat's in session now. Here come the judge. 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 Stop being mad Cause here come the judge. Don't know. Where do you think you're at? I know where you gon' be if you don't leave my 
enough anymore when I have two children and the thought of my children sitting in a place without anyone they knew really, really pulled from me the deepest pain that I have felt. And I remember this speech by a, by a Sikh activist. Her name is Valerie Kaur. She says, she talks about the experience of her grandfather in a jail and says, I think my grandfather, I'm paraphrasing, sitting in the darkness of that jail had to find a source of optimism, had to believe that change was coming. And she says, speaking about the, our moment in this, this darkness that we're living, she says, what if, what if this darkness, the mother in me asks, what if this darkness is not the darkness of the tomb but the darkness of the womb. What if this darkness is not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? What if our country is not dead, but is waiting to be born? What if, what if this is a moment of great transition? And what does the midwife tell us? The midwife says, breathe, and then push. Outside of these boundaries. 
The women of the United States Congress have just signed a letter we plan to be protesting continuously. And we are demanding for the President of the United States to account for every child and every parent without penalty. We are asking them to end the zero policy and to restore amnesty for domestic violence and gang violence. How outrageous! that the Attorney General has the audacity to use the scriptures and not understand what mercy is all about. Have mercy on his soul that he would remove the very lifeline or from Ramona who fled after the cartel in Honduras and looked at her and said, you are eight and a half months pregnant. These are folk that I hugged and talked to at the border. And they said, when you have that baby, we will kill you. And we will kill you because you didn't pay us back the few pennies that she borrowed because it's like a bank. She fled eight and a half months pregnant. For those of you who have carried a child, anybody want to move anywhere eight and a half months pregnant? So how could she be smuggling herself? She had the baby on the road, and when I saw her, she had not had any medical care, and the baby had not. Thank God some Border Patrol listened, and I said, you've got to get her to a hospital today, of which she went. That doesn't happen. We're not down there all the time. We're not watching and looking, but I will tell you that's what you're doing now. And I want to say about America, America is no better than the folk who are on this ground making it hold up to its ultimate goals and aspirations of a country that is free for all people. And let me tell the Justice Department if they do not read the law, when you step foot in the United States, you have the right and privileges of due process. Tell those local people down there. So today as you sit, you sit as an American. You sit as someone that claims and says we too are America. That we will not be defined by those who want to misuse and abuse what the laws of this nation are, what color I am, or what lifestyle I lead, what religion I am. I am not standing with a nation that has a Muslim ban. Because I believe in all people, all faiths. And so as we go to the place where you will do civil disobedience, be reminded that blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Be understanding that if whatever your faith in the Christian faith, someone died on a cross so that others might be saved. And as you know, the Quran and many other books of faith, they speak about love and charity. And if we have a nation that does not wallow in love and charity, then we have no nation. And I think it is important for this Justice Department and General Sessions to understand that love and charity is not mild-mannered, it is forceful, it is strong, uh, it is going forward. And I don't claim politics, but what I will say is that I will take this message back to the Democrats and I will let them know, and I hope the others are listening too, that there are people all around this nation that are willing to carry the flag. How dare anyone suggest that you are not a patriot? You carry the flag, you are wallowed in the flag, the red, white, and blue, for people died for your freedom to fight the way you are fighting. 
So let me just say this. Never give up, as John Lewis said. Never give in, never give out. Call upon us anytime. We're going back to the border over and over again. Women members are going back. We're going into our own district, and I ask you, send the message to my Houston sisters, because they're trying to put this center in our district. We've done everything, but what we need to do, the Dominican nuns are out there 24 hours a day. But we need the rest of Houston to come and stand in front of that facility and say to them, not on my watch. Not on my watch. Not on my watch. And freedom is never free. Freedom is never free. We will claim America never taking her backward, but kicking the door open and going forward like a mighty wave. And we will rescue these children. We will rescue these mothers. We will rescue his daughter. We will rescue Roger. We will rescue Leah. We will rescue these children. God bless all of you. This is your America. I want to give the floor to somebody who has been sacrificing on behalf of all of us before anybody knew who she was. She's been in this movement for two decades as well as was an anti-gun violence activist before it was cool to be an anti-gun violence activist. This is a woman who has engaged in dozens and dozens of acts of civil disobedience. And she is a woman who is a target of the right wing and every day has to endure some of the harshest, most vitriolic, sexist, misogynist, and very dangerous attacks. And we as sisters have to stand together and we have to stand with this woman because in this country, unfortunately, it's not just the immigrants who are now experiencing the type of disgusting and horrific trauma black women and native women have been experiencing this since the founding of these United States of America. Malcolm X said that the most disrespected woman in America is the black woman. And we are here to say that in our movement, in our circles, in our America, the black woman is the most respected woman amongst us. So I want to give it up to Tamika Manning. My sister for life, I would take a bullet for this woman. So please show her some love. She's one of the national co-chairs of the Women's March and a long-time anti-gun and anti-police brutality activist. Thank you so much. Thank you to all of you who are here. And I want to especially thank the Women's March team. I know it's probably been done already, but as co-president of this organization, along with Bob Bland, who I think is standing right here, give Bob Bland a shout out, y'all. I want to thank the Women's March team for this activity, and specifically Linda Sarsour for putting her heart and soul into this work, along with Winnie Wong and others. And let me say that as we were working on this action, and I was from afar checking in with Linda, checking in to see how things were going, and she was giving me play-by-play, play and we were working together with the other team members. All of a sudden, she dropped off the line one morning, I couldn't reach her two days ago and I was trying to figure out where did Linda go she's always so accessible and in fact she calls me and tells me what to do all the time and so for her to disappear I was like I'm off the hook but in fact I wasn't off the hook because what 
I found out was that that morning she heard that the Muslim ban was in fact being upheld and she had to go and tend to her own people. Nonetheless, she is still here right now. So when people tell us... So when people say to you that we are this and we are that and we are inside this one and we don't love people and we don't love this country and we don't love every single human being, you tell them they're a damn liar. You tell them that they are liars. And when those who came here today trolling us, I heard Breitbart is here, trying to, to film us to get some, some, some information to go back and lie in their story, to tell lies about them. You go on there and you tell them they're a damn lie. That we came here today because we love all people and that immigrants are our people, that Muslims are our people, that refugees are our people. We will stand for all. And let me tell you this. I've been around this building before. And I know it's hard, so I'm going to tell you this quick story and I'll move on. I walked around this building several years ago, seven times, the Department of Justice. You ask why? Y'all supposed to say why? Because we were protesting police brutality and mass incarceration. Today we show up here protesting mass deportation and mass separation of families. It's all the same damn thing. Because you see, the white supremacy that upholds oppression against black people upholds it against all people. And you are not exempt. Black people are all too aware of what it feels like for our families to be separated. We've been being separated since we were brought here in ships from our homeland. We still don't know where we come from, so we have no country to return to. So I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, those of you who are good moral conscience, those of you who are able to go home at night and you do not have to sleep with the pain of thinking that someone may come and arrest you for something, that another person can commit the same crime and you will be able to walk free just because of the color of your skin. When those folks are down at the border and you look at them and know that it will never be you, it tells me and it should tell you that you must fight harder, that you must go stronger, that you must stand up. Don't turn back, because forward together we can never go back. And the people united shall never be defeated. The people united shall never be defeated. that there are those who cannot fight for themselves and it is our responsibility to stand for them and to fight for them you are the ones that they are waiting for no one else so the fact that you showed up here today says that you are leaders that you are warriors and guess what america would be nothing without you god bless you resist 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 It says, and the quote is there for all of you to see, it says, Justice is the great interest of man on earth wherever her temple stands. There is a foundation for social security, general 
the happiness and the improvement and progress of our race. With Jeff Sessions in that Department of Justice, what they mean by progress of our race is the white race. And what that quote means to all of us here is people of all racial backgrounds, of all socioeconomic backgrounds, of all nationalities and ethnicities and sexual orientations. So while that quote is up there for now, we have to reclaim it and create a society and a department of justice that upholds democracy and equality and true justice for all. And those voices from Thursday's Women's March will have the last word on today's show. I want to thank Gerald Horn, and I want to thank our summer interns who contributed to today's show. Nicholas Aponza, Shailene Parham, Cheryl Walters, and David Williams. Well, this is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Esther Averam. I'll be joining the Textile Collective at a one-day exhibit Saturday, June 30th, 12 to 6 p.m. at the Residence Inn in Pentagon City in Arlington, Virginia. Until next week, keep raising your voice. Peace.